Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicoast. This is episode 35, and we're recording this on May 18th, 2017. Politicoast is a podcast that explores what's happening in British Columbia and across the country. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where we're at Politicoast Pod. I'm Scott. And I'm Ian. I want to give a quick shout out to start off the show to the boys in short pants. They've been pumping us as the place to listen to BC election coverage, so thanks to them for that. And if anyone out there is looking for super wonky, weedsy discussions of parliamentary budget officers, not offices, as Etienne is want to say, check them out. They also have a great interview on access to information stuff. And today is also National Caesar Day. And I'm going to be drinking a Caesar through this. So if you hear ice clicking or me choking on celery salt, that's what that is. And it's also just really good because it puts Trump's comments in the last couple of days in a nice context when he talks about no politician in history, and he says this with great surety, has been treated worse or more unfairly. Scott, who is Trump's Brutus? I think Trump's Brutus is Trump. The Trump version of Julius Caesar isn't him getting murdered by a bunch of senators. It's a Julius Caesar that's so clumsy, he keeps tripping and falling on his own sword repeatedly. Let's jump into the first segment. Let's make a deal. Lots of stuff's almost not been going on this last week. We're still sort of waiting to see how things will shake out from the BC election. Next week is when we'll finally get to absentee balance being counted, when we'll have the recounts announced. And so in the meantime, we're in this tense, awkward, who's in charge, we don't know. Well, we, we do know who's in charge, because the lieutenant governor told the previous government to keep running the show until the results are in. So Christy Clark's premier, she's been trying to talk about being more open to collaboration this week. She's, by what I've read, not looking for a coalition. It sounds like assuming the seat count stays the same, she's going to try and appoint a cabinet in early June. And shortly after that, recall the legislature and present maybe a sort of green-friendly budget. Maybe throw some tokens over there. For their part, the Greens have asked for three minimal things. Number one is to be recognized as an official party so that they can have slightly more resources and more recognition and be given more time. I saw an interesting analysis that they would actually get less money because the funding formula for independent MLAs would give them each more money than they would as a party. But the advantage of being a party is you get dedicated time to ask questions and you're a bit more legitimately recognized. Maybe they get office space, other other perks. So the Greens want to be a real party. They also want some kind of commitment to electoral reform, and they want some kind of commitment to campaign finance reform. Do you think Clark can reach those? I think she's going to do her best to try, uh, especially on the electoral reform. Back during the um, previous referendums on it, Clark had come out in support of it, and you know the Liberals, if anything, have the better track record in BC on electoral reform than the NDP, so they do have slightly more credibility on the file, and I can see Clark working on that and kind of going back to the BC STV of you know, 2005 and 2009, perhaps as a starting place. The campaign finance reform, that gets a little more dicey just because... You know, that's the sort of thing that would really kind of hurt the Liberals. 
and their whole fundraising strategy would have to change and they'd be much more reluctant to do it. Now, I could kind of see them maybe trying to go the route of the federal conservatives and trying to build up that, you know, recurring small donation system, which has been very effective for them. And, you know, she's got a few of the uh, former uh, Harbor PMO staffers working in Victoria. So there's some of that talent pools there who've worked on similar things before. So there might be some resources to draw upon there. And that also might be kind of why she's going with this, you know, give the opposition parties just enough to vote with us. And that was one thing Harper did very effectively during his two minority terms is always putting just enough of a carrot in any one bill that would otherwise be unpopular to get at least one of the other parties on board to pass. And it's a little hard to do with only three parties rather than four. But I can kind of see that same general strategy going forward for the uh, liberals. This is what I've been sort of thinking might happen is that kind of piecemeal find the votes on each issue. But I don't even think Clark needs to give a full commitment to any of these. She could talk, I expect her to talk a lot about, oh, we'll open up consultations and dialogues because those are really easy, low-hanging fruit to offer. And it's how close will that come to what the Greens want or I are think, willing to live with? I think the Greens will probably be pushing more for than for more than just a promise of a consultation. And you have to keep in mind here, there's also the NDP also bidding for their support here. And if both parties come to the table with promises of consultation, it's a little hard to decide. But, you know, if the Liberals promise consultations and the NDP promises a bill, you know, it's one of those things that makes it the choice a lot easier where to go with. And I can see there being at least one party willing to kind of step up what they're offering to the Greens into something more concrete than just consultations. The other thing that was interesting, I think, this week was you mentioned conservative political insiders in the BC Liberal Caucus, but the Green Party actually announced their sort of negotiation transition team, and they appointed Norman Spector, who some policy wonks in BC will recognize that name because he was an advisor to the Mulroney government, and he's been a sort of longtime journalist and columnist in BC well, more than just an advisor, he was chief of staff to Brian Mulroney. So basically kind of the second most powerful person in Ottawa in some ways. So you have this like deeply entrenched almost icon of the right now helping the Greens. And I think the like alarm bells are going off in some progressives' minds being like, the Greens are going to sell out. The Greens are going to sell out. They found the guy to help them sell out. On the other hand, I could also see this as, you know, you bring on someone who knows how to speak the language of the various parties, and Norm Spector knows how to speak the language of the BC Liberals, so I could see that, and also, you know, the Dreams have made a big deal of, you know, they're not the typical easily just fit into one niche and one section of the political spectrum, they kind of have a cross-partisan appeal, or at least that's how their talking points go, and, you know, this kind of goes along with it. I think the NDP base is looking on in horror, but, you know, the Green base might be seeing, hey, we're bringing in talent from all over the place, we're not being super partisan about this, and hey, this might be a plus. I think the problem, though, is the Greens built a coalition that's their base, that is that sort of maybe post-partisan, but then they, I think, also brought in a lot of progressives who were looking to just get Clark out and bring in the sort of much more environmentally friendly 
vision. And maybe they would have or have voted in NDP in the past, but didn't trust them, wanted something slightly different. Well, if you're looking for kind of environmental vision, you know, Mulroney <laughs> staffers probably pretty good because a lot of kind of the big environmental bits of legislation, uh, such as the um, Acid Rain Treaty, you know, those came in under Mulroney and I forget which organization, but there was a fairly prominent environmental organization that named him Canada's Greenest Prime Minister. So there is more green credentials and bona fides there than that might be initially appearing just from kind of where the modern conservative party is. I think it just sort of points to the fact that Greens are far more serious about pairing up with the Liberals than I think a lot of people were initially thinking. I think there was this sort of idea that a lot of people just had that the Greens would never go with the Liberals, like, because you want to get the Liberals out. And maybe you don't want a full NDP majority, but you want this sort of coalition that can be a bit more compromising, but still progressive. And so it'll be interesting to see if this is a sort of sign that the Greens are serious about making those inroads into the Liberals. Trudeau would be part of the negotiating tactic where, you know, you put someone who seems friendly to the Liberals to get the NDP to panic and step up their game and, you know, try and overcompensate for what they see as an inherent liberal friendliness on the green negotiating team. They're playing the 4D chess almost. Yes, I could definitely see kind of a strategy where you pick a somewhat more liberal friendly front man on there when your main goal is to get the NDP to offer as much as possible and then go with them in the long run. Well, I think the only other thing to really talk about here is John Horgan's been kind of left at the side. He's been out there saying he rejects Clark's talk about collaboration because it's almost too little too late. And he's still trying to win the green support. But I think for his part, most of his talk is behind the scenes because he doesn't have much public capital to play with right now. He's got to hope that Weaver decides to dance with him instead of Clark. Initially after the election, Horgan made a lot of the kind of now is the time for us to come together and, you know, bring in the change that British Columbians voted for. And, you know, he's kind of repeated those talking points a bit throughout the week, but hasn't really kind of done much more to build on that or add to that at all. And it does kind of, I think, leave one with the impression that he, everything's going on behind the scenes there. And that might be a good strategy, but it might also not put quite as much pressure on the Greens to back the NDP as they want. And the NDP base definitely wants the Greens to back them. And they've been pretty vocal on it, but I'm not sure the party itself has been quite as vocal. And, you know, maybe a little more rabble-rousing might be a good idea to kind of put more public pressure on the Greens to go that way. But maybe they're concerned that it's going to taint the -the behind-the-scenes discussions. But hoarding does seem quieter than one would expect in this situation. But ultimately, this whole thing might just be for nothing because, as you said at the beginning, we have the recounts in the two ridings plus 176,000 absentee ballots to count. So there's potential that there could be a couple swings and this whole thing might just be for nothing when you know a liberal or slightly less likely NDP majority comes in. Well, later in the show, I sat down with Mario Canseco from Insights West and we'll have a big chunk of this episode just dedicated to that 
interview talking about polling, so stay tuned for more BC stuff. But first, let's, let's switch gears into a second segment. Who wants to lead a Canadian political party? Scott, what's going on in the Conservative leadership race? Well, right now we're kind of in the final days of it. When you're hearing this, it'll be basically the last day to get your ballot in the mail to get to Toronto to be counted. So right now, everyone's in the campaigns all focusing on get out the vote. All these supporters they've identified in the last upwards of a year for some campaigns are being pestered with phone calls and encouragement to go vote and get their ballots in. And a lot of the cases with new members, they just don't actually end up voting it. In the end, they buy the membership and, for, and it turns out to be for nothing because they don't actually turn up to the polls because the people who buy memberships when a leadership race goes on are you know, the least engaged with the party, typically. So their turnout rates are lower. So there's a lot of effort going on right now kind of behind the scenes. And if you're the lucky people who aren't on the call lists, doesn't necessarily appear in what's going on in the news and the media, but it's kind of where all the campaigns are focused on. You see the little dribs and drabs of you know various candidates making various announcements but more or less right now we're kind of in the quiet lull right before the votes are counted. it's well it's slightly drawn out just because of the mail-in ballot process it's the eve of the election basically the night before it might as well be the night before the election and where everyone's kind of just made their final pitch and pushing their voters to get out but among one of those final bits of pitches and final announcements Maxime Bernier has announced that Kevin O'Leary would remain on his team and leave his economic advisor uh, should he win the uh, leadership race. This is, I think, Bernier both trying to reward O'Leary for the endorsement and also trying to win over some of those supporters. It does kind of play a little weird since O'Leary was playing this big business populism almost and Bernier's like, cut the corporate welfare and go hardcore libertarian. I don't know exactly how they'll reconcile those. And O'Leary is an advisor. I don't know if he's the kind of guy you want advising on the economy of the country. I'd say definitely not. But it does seem a little odd that he would be the economic advisor. Because like he said, they basically completely disagree on everything but lower taxes. And in terms of what to actually spend the remaining tax dollars on they basically don't agree on anything Kevin O'Leary to the extent that he actually had policies a huge amount of them was basically give out more corporate welfare but just do better deals while doing that and that's the exact opposite pitch of what Bernier was making of just cut it all get rid of it no corporate welfare for anyone it's almost like if you got Rand Paul as president but advised by Donald Trump be a pretty terrible, scary place. But the final little bit of conservative leadership race news is there seems to be a little bit of a question mark around some of the ballot counting. The conservatives require you to mail in your ballot, but they really like voter ID laws. So they're requiring everyone to like photocopy multiple pieces of ID and stick them in the right envelopes. You've done this, so you sort of get how it works. But Apparently, some of the scrutineers for at least the Bernier and O'Toole campaign are reporting a lot of ballots sort of being put into the, there's a question mark here pile, maybe as many as one in five. Which, if 
everyone who actually has a membership ends up voting. That could be upwards of 47,000 ballots to scrutinize more carefully. But yeah, apparently there's been some confusion on how the ballots need to be done. And one of the issues is uh, you have to have a a photocopy of your ID and a declaration form signed. But there's also another envelope that you put your ballot in that's to maintain the secrecy while they check your ID and everything. And, you know, some people have been putting everything in that envelope or... You know, there's various ways people have just been not putting the right piece of paper in the right envelope. Or, you know, maybe somebody's address has changed between when they registered and when they voted. And it, like, there's various things like that where you're, there's potential issues with it. And we'll have to see how it shakes out. I'm not sure it's going to really win things one way or the other. Although it may be a bit of a panic behind the scenes to make 47,000 decisions of these ones and figure out how it's going to be counted Especially when you have 13 campaigns arguing over whether or not to include or exclude a certain ballot. Yes, and with the ranking and everything, you could probably get some really interesting team-ups and arguments over it. Although if you do want to take part in the scrutiny, the Conservative Party's actually put up a live stream of the mailroom where all the ballots are uh, being counted. And I think it was Daily Hive ran the story with the most boring stream in Canada, which is probably the case, but hey, if you really want to see an empty room with 70,000 plus ballots in it right now, go for it. We'll, we'll link it in the show notes. In slightly more interesting conservative news, and kind of surprising to everyone, Ronna Ambrose earlier this week announced that this summer she's going to step down as an MP and leave politics. Obviously, she was not going to be leader after next weekend when the new conservative leader is elected but everyone thought she'd sort of stay on she's had a really great reputation as interim leader and they saw a lot of potential for her she's been in politics for a while but she started relatively young and still has a talent for it so big surprise she's saying she doesn't want to get involved in the new united conservative party that's just been sort of approved by the Kenny and Brian Jean teams in Alberta. So there's now just sort of a send-off to Ron Ambrose as she leaves politics. Yeah, she's apparently taken a position as Global Fellow at Wilson Center's Canada Institute, uh, mostly in the bilateral trade file, but there isn't kind of much more about it, and I'd honestly never heard of the Wilson Institute before today when I was doodling that. Named after Woodrow Wilson... There was a draft Rana campaign to sort of get her to run for this leadership race at the federal level. And there was talk about, oh, we could rewrite the rules and let her do it because her popularity was pretty high. And she actually probably could have done well when you looked at the race as it went. If she, yeah, if she'd actually kind of put her weight behind it, you know, might have ended up going through. I think, think there was enough other people working on the other campaigns that would have faced a lot of pushback and been hard to get through, but it was never going to happen without her backing, and she just didn't end up endorse it. But which now, is probably for the better, because she's well-liked by the party and has done a fairly good job at keeping it together and avoiding any of the fractures that have kind of existed beneath the surface and somewhat being brought to light by the leadership race. And I think there's now a lot of people on the sort of center-right and right in Alberta who are hoping 
that she'll sort of go back on her initial strong no and run for this conservative party, the UCP party, which everyone's already mocked on Twitter for almost being the Conservative Reform Alliance Party Mark II, because Rana could pose a strong sort of counterpoint to Rachel Notley. You'd have two strong female politicians facing off from different ends of the ideological spectrum, but neither presenting the sort of scary Jason Kenney or Brian Jean face. Yeah, she'd be able to kind of undo the you need to vote for us to keep those scary people out campaigns that have kind of been the hallmark of Alberta politics for a little while. Yeah, she's would have been a good, solid choice for that. And she also would have been a likely front runner for the 2020 conservative leadership race if Bernier ends up driving the party into the ground or, you know, whoever actually wins. Well, she hasn't ruled that out. I don't know if anyone's asked her because maybe that's a little premature to say, hey, when this guy or Leech burns out, do you want to try and run? It just seems rude before they've even been elected. It's not how you'd phrase it, but there were a few candidates in there that I do not see fair and well in a general election. Leech and Bernier being two of them. And, well, it's possible either could moderate their stances. I think it's somewhat unlikely that it will happen, and I think more likely than not, a Bernier-led Conservative Party would lose, and probably lose badly in 2019, unless he softens a lot. And if that's the case, you know, there's a decent chance of another leadership race, and, you know, Rana Ambrose would be a clear front runner for that. And, you know, she's built up a lot of kind of goodwill in the party, kind of from being, you know, a well-known, but didn't have a huge kind of presence as a minister. She could pull a Christy Clark then. Christy Clark was involved in an early Gordon Campbell government, walked away from politics for a bit, waited, that government burned itself out, and she came back as the sort of outsider savior. It could be a path for Rana to return, should she choose. Or maybe she's just wanting to go to a real world that's a little less terrible. Yeah, that's that's how so... A very plausible situation, but uh, yeah, I guess we'll have to keep our eye out in the uh, next leadership race, whenever that's going to be, and see if she throws her hat in the ring, because her, Peter McKay, John Baird are all kind of big-name former cabinet ministers who sat this round out, who've all kind of been considered possible front-runners for the leadership race. All right, and for one final leadership race, we have News for the NDP leadership race this week. Most of the oxygen of this week was spent talking about Jagmeet Singh. And even last week, they were starting to tease, oh, Jagmeet's going to announce on Monday. And then he announced on Monday. And then we had to talk about him all last weekend, plus a few days. And I'm not anti-Jagmeet. I'm interested to hear what he has to say. But so far, it's been the sort of rhetorical platitudes that one should say, as an NDP candidate, you know, all about courage and strength and heart. In other words, if you were to write a generic NDP list of talking points, is more or less what Jake Meets saying. But beyond that, he's got, you know, more people talking about his nice suits. He could be the first person of color to lead a major political party in Canada if he wins. 
Well, which, we could always have a Deepak O'Bry. That's true. Or, he could be or, my, or more likely Michael Tron-led Conservative Party. Which also led me to double-check and realize that there has never been a woman in charge of the Liberal Party of Canada. But so Jagmeet's campaign, I'll be interested to watch. Right now, he sort of positioned himself as the more populist than Charlie Angus, who's running on a sort of folksy populism. But I think Charlie's almost offended some of the more left end of the party that's looking for strength right now with his overtures to the Alberta NDP and talking about more energy. It'll be interesting to see how Jagmeet, coming from provincial politics in Ontario, tries to balance that national file. Jagmeet is fluent in English, Punjabi, and French. And so I imagine he can generate a lot of attention in Toronto, potentially in Quebec, and especially here in Metrovan. I already know some people in the Sikh community are really watching him closely and getting quite excited. So it'll be an interesting campaign to watch. It's nice to see that someone brought some attention to it because it was kind of trickling in the background, almost waiting for just the conservative race to get out of the way. Yeah, although it would be nice if this didn't have quite that celebrity, let's all dock at the big fancy... He's not even really a front runner, but kind of the same sort of thing we saw with Kevin O'Leary and Justin Trudeau a couple of years ago. And, well, he may be a fine politician, just kind of the way the media has treated this. I don't think it's necessarily healthy for Canadian democracy in the long run. Well, and I was seeing, I think it was a McLean's article or headline saying conservatives should hope Jagmeet wins because he'll split the progressive vote that wants a shiny leader, almost, which could be true. But it's so early that without any deep policies, I think it's too soon to really give much thought about Jagmeet, at least for me. One candidate I do have some thoughts on, though, is this Brian Graff, who... I think we might have touched on before, or I was going to touch on him. He had tried to enter the NDP leadership race. They shut him down without giving a public reason. So he filed a lawsuit, and then they said, all right, fine, just apply again. We'll tell you a reason if there's a reason. So he applied again. The NDP said no again, and now he's suing again. So the NDP's reason for rejecting him is... He had a criminal charge laid against him 25 years ago where he was found guilty of, quote, watching and besetting, which is criminal harassment of some kind. He wasn't convicted. He was given a conditional discharge, so he was guilty. And Robert Fox, the national director, wrote to Graf saying, given the party's commitment to protecting human rights and personal security, accepting an applicant who has been found guilty of such a crime would seriously damage our reputation. And he also sort of spoke out against Graf's, quote, propensity for litigation. And given this guy has already sued the party twice in the last six months, it starts to raise some flags. Graf was also a Liberal Party of Canada member until about mid-early 2016, when he became disgruntled and decided to join the NDP, and now he wants to be leader. Graf is also telling the National Post now that Nobody gave Bernie Sanders a chance when he joined the Democrats. It's the Galileo gambit for politics, basically. Yeah, Graf seems like someone who, if we say the wrong thing right now, we're going to get sued. He's not going to be a real candidate. You almost want him, the NDP to just, like, 
give the initial approval to see if he can even raise the money or get the signatures because that I don't even think he could do that. And that's another easier way to sort of dispel him rather than get these headlines of being sued. But like we talked about with the BC election, the NDP in this province had the candidate facing a libel lawsuit who then lost a libel lawsuit during the campaign. This guy has a criminal conviction, and I'm not opposed to having candidates who've done their time or gotten their conditional discharge becoming elected officials. But I don't, I'm not, I'm not sure if he's learned his lesson. Maybe he seems very happy with the lawsuits. Yeah. It's, you know, one of those things that, okay, maybe you could give someone a chance if that's, you know, the kind of one black mark against them, but with everything else that has been raised as a potential concern, you know, he doesn't have a long standing history with the party he has a propensity for litigation. All of those together present a much greater challenge than any one of them. And unless the strategy is to go for a Trumpian, overwhelm them with so many potential scandals, none of them stick. There just doesn't seem to be kind of a good way to go forward with it. And the kind of benefit of the doubt would seem to be a losing prospect strategy wise. Well, and so aside from Brian Graff, who's not going to be in the race, let's be realistic, the four who are already in and Jagmeet, we potentially have Pat Stogren still, who's said he's going to get in, but he still has yet to sort of pay his fee and give his 500 signatures. He's been putting out a lot of ads and stuff, so he's, he does seem to be somewhat serious about it, but... It is odd that he hasn't actually finalized the registration yet, considering he's been at this for a couple months now. And then there's also Ibrahim Bruno El Kahuri, who is a Montreal businessman with not much of an internet presence. The only thing I can really find about him in the NDP is that he lost the nomination battle for the seat to challenge Justin Trudeau's riding in the last federal election, which is a pretty... Low bar. Yeah. There's a few candidates like that just across the political spectrum who've kind of been running, who you just kind of wonder why they're doing it if they haven't had success at a lower level. Uh, Andrew Satston is another one that comes to mind. He lost his seat in 2015, and it's hard to see how there's an argument for viability that you can win the country when you can't win your own seat. Or a nomination for a, there's no way we're actually going to win this seat, but we need somebody there anyway. So yeah, it just seems kind of odd that Bruno and Satstin have been kind of throwing their hat in the ring when they just don't have a viable, this is how I become leader kind of track record or case to make. It can make sense for them to get in the race early, get a little bit of profile, and then back out and endorse someone. But... We didn't really see that in the conservative race. We might see it in the NDP race, but it seems like the also-rans aren't even getting up to the attention of Peter Julian, which, which hasn't been that much. Well, part of the problem, too, is neither party uses the delegated convention model anymore. <clears throat> so you can't actually direct your supporters in any sort of coordinated and responsive way to back another candidate with a delegated convention, if you make a deal that you get shadow critic for fisheries and oceans or something, you can actually have a good quid pro quo there where 
you are bringing actual votes that you can rally and you know they're going to vote the way you say that. But when Kevin O'Leary endorsed Maxine Bernier, nobody has any real idea how those votes ended up going and are splitting across. And we have some not great polling on kind of second choice preferences, but that is a very coarse and very unreliable sort of thing compared to a hey, these are the guys we have running our delegates. I'll give them a call and they'll all get them to vote for this other guy. So it's just harder to do that kind of I'm only in the race to trade off my support sort of situation. So we'll keep our eye on the NDP leadership race. Unlike the boys in short pants, neither of us are tied to a campaign, so we're free to talk about it as much as we want. But let's go into a final segment. As I mentioned, I sat down on Tuesday evening with Mario Canseco from Insights West to talk just about polling and the BC elections. So I'll just throw it right into that interview. My name is Mario Canseco. I'm the vice president of Public Affairs at Insights West. I've been at Insights West for almost four years, uh, doing public opinion research for about 14 years now. And where did you come from before Insights West? Because you were involved in other things. I, uh, I worked for Angus Reid, uh, first at the Center for Public Opinion and Democracy, and then at Angus Reid Strategies, which then became Angus Reid Public Opinion um, for about 10 years. And so you started with Insights West when Insights West really got going, I believe, right? Uh, it, it, the company had been around for about a year. It was founded in 2012 by Steve Mossop. Uh, he used to be the Western Canada president for Ipsos. Uh, there was a, some sort of merger between Ipsos and Sinovate, and Steve, to his credit, I mean, he could have gone to the Okanagan and started a winery, but <laughs> he decided to continue doing public opinion polling. I met him at a conference uh, shortly before the, the 2013 election, and I really liked him. I thought, maybe this is a place where I can work, and the, everything lined up perfectly for me to join the company in June 2013, and I've been here ever since. For those who aren't familiar, maybe basically walk through what it is you do to generate the headline in the Vancouver Sun or wherever people <laughs> see the, like, liberals up by two or, you know, where, does that, where do those numbers come from? Well, what we do uh, is uh, mostly online polls. Uh, we have a panel that has around 30,000 British Columbians, uh, which we rely upon to ask questions and gauge a wide variety of topics for clients most of the time. But also we have these meetings where we talk about certain things that we want to know and do some analysis on, on things that we believe are going to be interesting for the media, but also things that we're interested in knowing ourselves. Um, we've done everything from the existence of UFOs to how people feel about the fentanyl crisis. Um, when I came here, part of the reason that I came here was there was a lot of hesitation about doing polls. Uh, the, the 2013 election had made a lot of people uneasy about public opinion polling. The first couple of times that we went out there with numbers, uh, you get those tweets back, you get those emails back from reporters saying, I can't trust you, I can't believe you. And I saw it as a challenge. Like, you know, This is going to be important. It's never going to go away, even though we did 22 elections before this one, and they all worked out fine. Uh, it was about the 2017 election to finally be able to get that monkey off her back and have the media trust you again. But when the numbers made sense and you were talking about issues that people cared about, um, we got a lot of coverage. Although it was always accompanied by that caveat of, you know, polls have been wrong before, there's been a lot of problems, so, you know, take this with a grain of salt. So from that 30,000 British Columbian panel, how do you sort of pick out which ones do you? How do you make sure that they're the representative as best as you can? 
Well, the one thing that we believe in is, is census targets. It's essentially the same way that a pollster would have done this in the 60s or 70s knocking on doors or somebody in the 80s and early 90s using a telephone. You know, you've you got to get the right mix of men and women, the right mix of ages, the right mix of regions. It's the only way to, to make this kind of thing come alive. It's, and we do have a robust panel that allows us to take a representative portion of the panel and do the survey. It's not as if everybody who's in the panel gets invited. It doesn't work in the same way as the online poll that you might see on a website where everybody can click on it and have fun. Um, I think one of the major uh, difficulties that we've had is convincing people or essentially explaining to people that our polls are different from what you see on the Global Mail website, for instance, where anybody can vote for whatever they want, even if they're not in Canada, they're voting in a federal election, so to speak. Um, I, I think it's, it's, it's really worked well. Uh, there was a lot of talk about the online polls being worse than the telephone polls in the 2013 election. I think we all crashed and burned pretty rapidly and horribly in that one. I don't think a methodology was necessarily superior to the next, but it, it led to a lot of hesitation about public polls. Essentially, anything that you were publishing, mm -hmm. uh, people would point back to your record, and, and that was a difficult time for all of us. Yeah, a lot of the criticism for online polls comes from trying to get the people who don't have internet or don't use the computer regularly, but now it's almost becoming harder to get people with landlines because people under 40 don't really have home phone lines anymore. Well, that, I think that's been one of the major factors for the change in the industry. When, when I worked with Angus Reid, um, people were very critical of the online approach back in 2007. That's when we did our first election, which was the Quebec provincial election. It's like, you can't do this online. It's ridiculous. And there are so many people who are not going to be there. And that was the moment when you started to see people abandoning landlines. This is 10 years ago. And now uh, you have fewer people answering the phone. I mean, at, at, at our house, we decided to ditch the landline about a year ago. But before that, I always got calls, and I felt bad if I hung up them on my fellow pollsters. So if they didn't ask the question whether I work for a research company or not, I would take the phone call because I know how desperate they were to, to find people to talk to. And they never wanted to talk to me because I was part <laughs> of the most boring demographic there is. I'm a man 35 to 54. Right. Uh, they were looking for somebody younger. They were looking for somebody with a different gender. I couldn't really help. So even somebody <laughs> who was willing to take part in a poll couldn't do it. But even having that sort of self-selected wanting to respond to political polls or wanting to respond just to polls in generally as a sort of niche kind of person, and that's a little bit hard to counteract, well, I guess. And that's, that's also part of the essence of building a good online panel. If you build an online panel based on advertisements about how much you hate the premier or how much you hate the prime minister or how much you hate politics then you're going to get a lot of people who are involved in politics and are going to have an axe to grind and want to take surveys that deal with politics. When in reality, a lot of the work that we do is based on consumer products. So you've got to have a panel that works for both things. You know, Maybe I'm going to ask you about who you'll vote for next week, but maybe tomorrow I'm going to ask you about which detergent you use, and I need <laughs> to be able to count on you for that. So coming back to this election, the big headline you got to brag about this year was Insights West got it as close as possible, <laughs> I guess, even almost within margin of error, plus some, versus 
a lot of the other pollsters, though, did really well this election. Yeah. Everyone seemed to be within margin of error, so it kind of comes down to a roll of the dice, honestly, to who gets the closest, but you got bragging rights, <laughs> and why, why were you so better? Well, I think there were a couple of things that, that helped us along the way. Uh, we have a, a system that we've used before where we're trying not to concentrate on the horse race too much. I think part of the problem back in 2013 was an obsession with the horse race, people doing daily tracking or weekly tracking. It, it, it's a drain on resources. You find yourself having to explain a one-point fluctuation in a 3.5% margin of error poll, right. uh, which doesn't make a lot of sense. And when I came here, we instituted this system where we were going to do one voting intention poll at the start and one at the end and do a lot of issues in the middle. We'll talk about uh, poverty, we'll talk about housing, we'll talk about the economy, but we're not going to be publishing voting findings every week or every three days because... That's not the kind of game that we're in. We want to make it all the way to the end. The second thing is poll all the way to the end. We, we conducted some of our interviews for a final poll on Monday just to be certain that nobody was going to change their minds. Um, the day after the 2013 election, I got an email from a lady in Carysdale who said, I took your survey and I told you I was going to vote for one party. But when I got to the polling station, I changed my mind. Now, that's just one person. <laughs> but when you factor that in, you know, mm -hmm. if you take the survey on Friday, it doesn't do me any good to figure out whether you're going to change your mind or not. What did you see when you were looking at issues through this election? What were people sort of really caring about? And maybe how was that different than maybe 2013? It was definitely different. Uh, economy and jobs, and I've done a couple of other elections. I mean, 2009, it was all about economy and jobs, which is understandable. Uh, financial crisis just broke. People were worried. Uh, we didn't see a lot of people who were willing to change horses at that time. Um, liberals won that election. Uh, 2013, I think it was similar in that vein. There were a lot of discussions about economy and jobs, but people seemed to be very dissatisfied with the liberal record. I think there was still the, the, the ripple effect of the HSD, even though we weren't paying for it at the time. And this time around, I mean, it's, it's usually a situation where you have the gender differences uh, to a lesser extent, the regional breakdowns. But this was really a generational election. The 18 to 34 is extremely concerned about housing, extremely concerned about am I going to be able to live in the city where I work, where I grew up in, where I was born. And the over 55 is going, I am the first one to admit that I don't like the premier's leadership mm -hmm. style, but I don't want the NDP to get back in power. So if I have to choose between those two evils, I'm going to stay with the liberals. But the numbers were lower than in the last election. So heading into the final day, you start to see those two forces at play. Uh, the motivation from the 18 to 34 was clearly higher than it was four years ago. So that bodes well for the NDP and the Greens. And the over 55s are going, I really, really don't like this premier, but I think that I don't want the NDP back mm -hmm. in charge. So that's what takes you to a tie situation. Because looking back into our elections in Alberta, which was a big surprise for most people, it wasn't for us because we saw Rachel Notley connecting so well in the economy uh, overtaking Jim Prentice as the best premier, and we were waiting for that moment. Okay, mm -hmm. when once once Horgan gets past this number, then it's a change election, and it never happened. I mean, on economic management, lower than Clark. On best premier, lower than Clark. But you still saw people who were sort of confused about where they wanted to go. So we looked at the numbers, did all the waiting. You look at the numbers; mm -hmm. it's a tie, and it ended up being a tie. So it worked very well. I know one thing you have to do a lot as in the polling industry is look at past elections to try to get a sense, because you can only really go off what has happened before. But then you have an election like this, where you have a sort of surgent Green Party. How do you 
account for that and sort of what did you see <laughs> without giving away trade secrets? No, obviously. that's fine. You know, the, I think that was the key to the exercise this time around. Because um, the Greens traditionally poll very well in the middle of the campaign. And then when the election becomes mm -hmm. about choosing a government, they start to drop. And what was fascinating about the Greens this time is whenever we ask about the Greens or, or other third parties, you know, I'm thinking... Uh, the Alberta Party in Alberta, uh, the Liberals in Manitoba. Well, there's people who are sort of looking into those opportunities to vote for somebody because they don't like any of the two major choices. And the level of certainty of vote starts to drop. Even if you ask them the day before, are you absolutely certain you're voting for this party? For the major parties, that number is usually between 70 and 80%, sometimes higher than that. Uh, same thing happens in federal elections. For Greens and third parties, it drops. It becomes like 50, 55 maybe. So you're looking at it more as this is the kind of person who might show up at the polling station tomorrow after telling me that they're going to vote Green and then choose something else. And the level of commitment for Green voters in this election and the final poll that we did was closer to the level that we saw for the NDP and the Liberals. So you're looking at it more as, okay, these aren't people who are going to change their minds. We right. started at 48% saying, I may change my mind. We closed it with about 20-something. So they're right. committed. And it's not as if there was no fluctuation for the Greens. We had them at 17% at the start of the campaign with our model. They ended up at 17%. And, you know, there were people who were reacting, you know, they're, they're surging. It's like, no, it's real. You know, they started with 17% but half of them were not committed, they're finishing with 17%, and three out of four are saying, I'm not changing my mind. So looking into those numbers certainly helps you figure out where they're going to be ending up. Did you track sort of at the, during the campaign level, you said you didn't really do horse race numbers through it, but did you see, look for any sort of change events, like look at the debate, for example, or other things that might have cemented that kind of support for the Greens or otherwise in the campaign? I'd say the numbers for Andrew Weaver uh, were superior to any other leader. I mean, he closes uh, with 46% approval rating, which is astonishingly high, um, especially for somebody mm -hmm. who's a third-party leader. Uh, Premier Clark did better than she did at the start of the campaign. Mm -hmm. Same goes for John Horgan, even though he was more of a polarizing figure. Um, so that also plays a role into this. And, and you know, to me, the, the, the early stages of the campaign evoked, I'd say, the second campaign that Jack Layton fought for the NDP, mm -hmm. where people were looking at him saying, I really like this person, but I don't know if I'm comfortable giving this party my vote. You know, and, and we had a situation like that. Obviously, 2011 was different for the NDP. They finished in second place federally. But this reminded me of that type of situation of, mm -hmm. I really, really want to vote for the Greens, but I don't know if it's time for change. I'm not really comfortable with all of the other options. Um, they end up with three seats, which is monumental. I mean, there's never been a Green Party that gets more than one seat. So I think part of the situation was people really connected with, with, the, with what Andrew Weaver was saying, and they stayed there. And, you know, people ask me sometimes, how can he be at 46% <laughs> approval rating and only get 17% of the vote? Well, that's, that's the way it goes sometimes. You can really, really like a candidate, mm -hmm. but maybe you really like whoever's running and you're writing for another party or you're more concerned about other issues. That's the reason why the numbers fluctuate so wildly. Well, so people are really happy with Andrew Weaver. They like him. And you've looked at sort of what people want now. Like you just had a poll come out this week about <laughs> what to do with this toss-up hung parliament, assuming it doesn't go to a liberal majority, which even then it'll be a razor's edge and will be fight by fight. So maybe just take me through what the headlines of that were first. Well, it's, it's a very divided province. I think that would be the main situation that I would look into. 
you had roughly the same percentage of people voting for either of the two major parties. So when you're asking people if you're okay with a liberal government supported by the Greens, you're going to have almost 47% saying no. And it's going to be the same thing when you ask people, would you rather have an NDP government supported by the Greens? So there's a lot of people who won't be happy unless the person they voted for or the party they voted for forms the government. Um, what was really striking is there's ideas from all parties that people want to implement. Mm -hmm. And the first one is balanced budgets. And you know everybody talks about balanced budgets, but there's no certainty knowing whether that's going to happen or not. There's a lot of support also for um, the idea of making changes to the way the government communicates and has its advertising, which was mm -hmm. one of the key issues for the Greens. Um, an idea also to change the way we do political fundraising. Uh, the Greens campaign on it, the NDP talked about it as well. Um, and the lowest thing that we found out of everything that we tested was LNG. So you're looking into it from the standpoint of the Greens. Are you going to be supporting a government that is really adamant on pushing LNG when you're opposed to it? Or are you better off supporting the NDP and saying, let's take this for as long as you can? Um, it's, it's been odd in the sense that we're asking people who voted in the election. So this is before everybody mm -hmm. knows that we're going to end up in a tie. It's, it will be interesting to see how the situation changes in the next few weeks. I think there's mm -hmm. going to be a lot of attention. Um, many of us were gone shy of doing any polling after the 2013 <laughs> election, but <laughs> given the success that most of us had, uh, it's a little bit easier to go back into the public and ask them. Maybe let's look at that. What do you think went wrong in 2013 for the industry that sort of got corrected since then? Um, on a personal note, I, I came to a place uh, that really embraced new technologies and new ways of doing things. Um, when I spoke to Steve about joining the company, I told him that I was interested in testing this not only here in BC, but anywhere in the world. And he very graciously allowed me to do the US election, which went very well for us as well. As far as the voting intention numbers, we didn't do any electoral college predictions mm -hmm. and we didn't poll in the states where things went wrong. And I'm happy that our name is not Insights Midwest because uh, <laughs> you know, my, my colleagues there had a rough night. Uh, but 2013, there were a couple of things. I think there was a, a feeling of inevitability. And, and when that thing happens, then you're essentially fighting over the size of the victory. And it's kind of similar to the election we did in Saskatchewan, where you have a ruling political party that is very popular and is going to be ahead maybe by 5, by 10, by 12, and everybody's sort of trying to figure out what the size of the majority is going to be. And I think we headed into that election in a similar fashion. I think there were problems uh, with the way in which we organized um, the numbers. Uh, there were problems with data collection. I don't think it's necessarily that we overweighted the youth. Uh, I've never believed in that. In fact, people who believe in that didn't do very well in the federal election because mm. they couldn't see all of the young people who wanted to vote for Trudeau because they overweighted it to the 55 and overs who are supposedly going to vote for the conservatives. And then you have a situation where you're suggesting that the election is going to be a tie, and it actually wasn't a tie. Mm -hmm. But more than anything, I think it's, it's making sure that you're looking at, at other things. Uh, going back to 2013, and I wouldn't trade it for everything, for mm -hmm. anything. I wouldn't go back and, if I had a time machine, I wouldn't go back to 2013 and call it perfectly. Uh, I think that experience and being able to come face to face with failure uh, enabled me to be a better researcher and go to a better company. So I, I, I wouldn't go back and say, well, if I could call it again, I would call it this way. Um, but more than that, there's a situation where the numbers 
didn't really make a lot of sense uh, for a lot of people. Um, it, it, it didn't have the feeling of a change election, but then you're not noticing other things. Um, mm. And now that I look back on, on that election with the model that we have at our disposal, there was no way to have a change election when the leader of the opposition wasn't as popular, when he wasn't right. seen as somebody who could be the next premier, when on economic management he was trailing. And I think that experience allowed us to design this model, which either tells you the government's going to win and win big, like it happened in Saskatchewan. Uh, there's a change election, like what we saw in Alberta and Manitoba, or it's too close to call, which is what happened in B.C., well, do you have any thoughts about where BC is going to go from here, either politically or polling-wise? Well, you know, politically, I think it's, it's an interesting dilemma. And regardless of the decision that is taken, uh, you're going to have half of, the, half of the province be very upset. Um, if, if there's a green liberal government or agreement or coalition, the NDP is going to feel slighted. Uh, if there's an NDP green agreement, government, coalition, whatever we want to call it, mm-hmm. uh, liberals are going to say, we want a popular vote, we have more seats, this is a travesty. Um, there's definitely a, a different situation uh, that we need to, to deal with. It's unparalleled for the past half a century in our province. Um, but I do think that there's, there are signs uh, about the difficulty that the liberals are going to have holding on to this. Um, I would go back to what Kevin Falcon wrote for the CBC, mm. the statements that he made in an interview to the Vancouver Sun. I think there's people already who are angling to look at this as an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I think we saw it in Alberta after Rachel Notley won the election. Okay, so you went for the NDP. We understand it. It's a repudiation of things that we've done, particularly the last premier that they have. Um, but we're sure that if they don't do the job properly, you'll come back to us. And I think there's going to be more people probably from the federal conservatives, um, even people who didn't run in the last election. I mean, we had a lot of people who were aspiring to become the next leader of the Liberal Party in B.C. and decided not to do anything. So there might be something there. And on the part of the NDP, I mean, aside from the situation, you know, they're getting roughly the same percentage of the vote every election. So mm-hmm. that's that also doesn't bode well. That sort of ceiling. Yeah. You hit that 40%, mm-hmm. uh, and it's been consistent over the past few elections. Uh, I think there's a problem with the brand. I think there's a lot of people of a specific age, and I'm talking about baby boomers, who will not vote for a party that is called NDP. I think they would vote for a party that rebrands itself and tries to become something that is not tied to their federal cousins or tied to the governments of the 1990s that they still remember. Uh, and there's no need for it. You know, you don't really have a, a natural <laughs> liberal party cousin here. You know, you have mm-hmm. liberals and conservatives federally who vote for the liberal party. You have the BC Conservative Party, which is not really a, a farm <laughs> team for the, for the federal conservatives. Even the Greens have their differences. Why have an NDP uh, branch of the federal mm-hmm. party in British Columbia if, it, if the brand has become uh, so toxic? that it doesn't allow you, in an election where the premier isn't really that popular, it doesn't allow you to go past the 40% mark. So I think there's, there's bound to be changes. Even if the NDP were to form the government, I think they'll be the first ones to say, well, you know, with a premier this unpopular, with all of these problems, with all of these situations, mm-hmm. our share of the vote is up slightly, but not enough to propel us to win a government on our own. Do you think 
you'll be polling any of those kind of questions, like the who could replace Clark, the should the NDP rebrand, those kind of questions in the next, it's obviously too soon right now, but maybe six months from now. No, I think it's absolutely necessary. Um, part of it is there's a commitment to, to what is going to be happening, and we've been very adamant on, on asking about everything. Uh, we were asking about housing before it was cool. <laughs> That's <laughs> the way I would say it. Um, we were asking about specific issues before they became important or policy planks for other parties. Um, at the first couple of months, uh, you faced derision, and I understand it. I think people were upset with the fact that uh, the polls from various companies suggested a different outcome to the election than the one we had. Um, but now is the time to show that the methodology works and to apply it into things that are going to be more meaningful. Um, we've never had a situation like this before. So it's an important moment mm -hmm. to test your methodology again and say, well, this is the kind of situation that would make most people happy. And this is the kind of length that a government should have under these circumstances. Um, it's tough for the Greens. Um, you know, they're, they're bound to be facing a difficult time. I mean, now they have a caucus, which mm -hmm. is great for them. Um, but there's, there's an emphasis on, you know, you're, you're going to be having problems regardless of the party that you support. Heading into another election uh, would probably not be the best case scenario for anybody. Uh, I mean, it's good for them. The signs are ready. You just mm -hmm. put them up again. Um, because we did so well, I don't want to do this <laughs> immediately. <laughs> um, but it's, it'll be interesting to see how the public reacts to this. And, and I think it'll depend on the final numbers after all the counts are done, after everything mm -hmm. is, is there. We certainly will take a look at how the public is feeling. Are there any other races across the country you're looking at? I know Nova Scotia is going into an election, but that's, that would be maybe Insights East job to look at. But <laughs> exactly. I know you look closely at Alberta. Are you looking at any of the federal leadership races? Are there any other sort of things here? Well, we asked some questions on the federal uh, conservative leadership race. I think the, the appearance of, of Jagmeet Singh and the NDP race certainly uh, makes it an and exciting the incredible one amount to of talk attention about. he's gotten in the last oh, yeah. 24 hours. Oh, it's been... It's been it's made a lot of people aware that yeah, that race that is, is happening. Race, yeah. uh, for the conservatives, you know, we ask questions uh, to, I think it's very difficult to try to forecast that one. Mm -hmm. First, because of the type of list that you require, but also because of the volatility that you have uh, on a ranked ballot system. Uh, when I worked in the UK, uh, we were thinking about doing the London election, and because they vote in that way, it's mm -hmm. like, well, but if you have more second-place votes and then the third vote, it's like, you know what, this is too complex. So I'm, I'm not a big proponent of STV because it'll put me out of a job, <laughs> um, or at least I'll have to do my job differently, I guess. Um, but it's, it'll be interesting to see what happens. We asked about the federal leadership race, and what was interesting about it uh, for the conservatives was you know, Kevin O'Leary was very well known, but he was also, you know, not really that well liked. Mm. And you saw other politicians who weren't really there. And I would, you know, look at Andrew Weaver, for instance, the first time we asked about it, you had 47% of people saying, I don't know who this person is. At the end of the election, that number is down to the 20s. And there's a lot of more people who say, mm -hmm. I like what he's saying and I like where he's coming from. So there's an opportunity there for, for some of the candidates. Do you think any of them have managed to get that positive sort of attention out of this race, or has it just been mudslinging in the Conservatives? Well, it's been, it's been a little difficult. I'd say um, you have people who are fully committed to conservative values, mm -hmm. and that's fine. I think it's great to, to stand by your beliefs. 
but we never saw the whittling down of the race. We never mm. went into, okay, now there's only six candidates yeah. or four or three. Like, you know, O'Leary came in and he figured out that he wasn't going to do well and he decided to abandon the race and, and endorse Bernier. He's blaming Quebec for this, um, which I don't really understand. Uh, but you still have a lot of candidates there. So I mm -hmm. think everybody believes that they have a shot. Um, and it makes it complex. You know, you, you look at Ontario, for instance, when, when Dalton McGinty became leader, he was number six on the first ballot. And then, but that's different. That's mm -hmm. a convention model where yeah. you talk to people and you move them from side to side. We don't have any of that. So you could have somebody who's the number two choice for most people and not the number one choice for most people. And they mm -hmm. end up becoming the leader. Now, if it's, if it's Bernier, you know, Bernie versus Trudeau, a couple of Quebecers, that would suggest that the NDP should go outside of Quebec for its next leader. Um, we still have to see what happens with the Greens uh, in the next election. Are they going to be able to to be at the debates or what mm -hmm. type of decision will be taken? Um, but it's, I think it'll make it more competitive. One of the reasons we have an ass voting intention federally is because there's nobody leading the two parties. Mm -hmm. uh, you're going to be getting 50% of people saying that they'll vote for the liberals. And it essentially works as a name recognition exercise. It's kind of like asking Democrats today, would you vote for Donald Trump or whoever yeah. the Democrats nominate, whether it's Bernie Sanders mm -hmm. or Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. Yeah, <laughs> like, cardboard cutout Democrat. Is, exactly, right? He's doing pretty good. Somebody who's there. Um, so that's why we've steered clear of that. And, and you know, we've said you know, once, once everybody has leaders in place, then we can start asking these questions. What are some of the fun polls you're working on? You mentioned the <laughs> uh, ghosts and paranormal stuff. Oh, I know yes. you've done a poll with me with on the BC Humanist that and sort fun. of on religion and things like that. Yeah. Is anything fun recently done? You don't have to sort of give away what's coming up. No, we have a, we've been working on a questionnaire, and this is uh, really a group effort uh, related to food. And we're trying to test some, some concepts, particularly... Uh, superfoods. Are you more likely right. to be eating some of the stuff that you're reading about in articles and magazines? And do you think this is going to help you feel better? Uh, but also trying to look into some of those uh, um, interesting conspiracy theories. You know, right. it's, it's milk full of hormones and this is why you have toddlers who look like teenagers. And kind of getting right. into okay. that type of situation just to make sense of how people eat. One of the other things that I'm interested in uh, now that we're touching into the food issue is how do we are we still mm -hmm. spending an hour with the family, with no television, with no gadgets and talking about our day? Or mm -hmm. have we become a society that is more likely to just chow Shovel down very quickly and then move around and do your business? Uh, this came about because of an article I read about the, the demise of cereal sales in the United States. And, and that mm -hmm. affects everything. It affects uh Saturday morning cartoons. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it affects grain. It affects... And, and it's like, you know, I just don't have time to do this anymore. Yeah. Um, not necessarily because of the gluten-free craze, but because, you know, maybe I don't want to do this. Maybe I want to have a smoothie. Maybe I want to grab something and go. Maybe I'll just get a muffin right next door to the office. So breakfast is starting to die, so to speak. Yeah. That's also one of the things that I'm interested in. What are you eating? How are you eating it? And... and and also, because we have the panel uh, that has a multicultural component, trying to figure out the differences. If, if you're from a South Asian mm -hmm. family, are you eating differently than if you're from an East Asian family or if you're from a European background? Or even looking at Prince George versus Victoria or oh, yeah. small town BC. Well, when we did the survey about tipping, and I remember, okay, we just 
had the opportunity, we did it. I mm -hmm. had the data sitting there for a couple of weeks, and I thought, well, we have nothing to go with this week, so let's just do the one on tipping. And it was a massive success. Everybody was obsessed with it. Uh, why are we tipping so much? Why are we tipping so less? Mm -hmm. How come you don't leave any sense behind when you're going to the coffee shop? And those differences made it come alive. And I think that was part of the reason why we wanted to get into the food thing. You know, Are, are there differences here? Are there places? And it also helps... People who are interested in this, you know, maybe you realize that if you have goji berries, you shouldn't go sell them in, you know, Northeast BC. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? for sure. You go to the island <laughs> where mm -hmm. they're more likely to be interested. That reminds me to spin back. Are there demographic differences besides just the age that you sort of saw in the election? When you looked at the map at the end of the night, it looked like the interior and rural areas were very red. The coast and the island was very orange and green. Did that sort of play out in the polling data, or is it? I would say it did. Uh, there was a lot of support uh, for the Greens in the early stages in the island. I think it came down to a level uh, where they needed to be to get the three seats, but it mm -hmm. wasn't going to be a situation where the green was going, where the island was going to be painted green. Uh, you still see a lot of support for the Liberals up north, and, and what's interesting about the NDP is they were criticized a lot for campaigning mostly in the urban areas. And they ended up winning the seats that they needed there. I mean, they get Delta North. They mm -hmm. unseat two ministers in Surrey, one minister in North Vancouver, one minister in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a successful campaign. And, you know, it's, I think that's also a part of the message that this sends. Um, as far as people assume that it's easier to defeat a backbencher. You know, just run somebody who's very well-known, mm -hmm. community leader. They'll knock on doors and they'll do their thing. Uh, because of the nature of this government, uh, where it's always somebody else taking the blame, so to speak, for some of the missteps that the government has taken, it made it very difficult to defend those four seats. Uh, and it was interesting to, to watch it develop on election night and to watch it happening live and to have to uh, offer commentary on it mm -hmm. live. Like, okay, so this is where it's going. And there's a moment there. And, you know, I had the pleasure and privilege of working with a a lot of experts who look at the numbers coming in and you know, um, going, well, yeah, this isn't, this is going to be bad. And, and you know, to see somebody like Fassbender lose by 18 points, it's not something that you see every night mm -hmm. when there is a government that is hoping to be reelected and campaigning on, on a message of, you know, give us four more years. Did you see differences in the ethnic backgrounds of BC? I know traditionally Chinese families in Metro Vancouver tended to be a bit more liberal, like in Richmond. Mm -hmm. What have you seen sort of in the data? Well, we, we did a survey looking into the motivations. And what was interesting about it is the South Asian community tended to be more engaged. They were more likely to be paying attention to the campaign, uh -huh. more likely to be commenting on it. Uh, East Asian voters weren't really that excited but they weren't really that upset either. I think going back to the coverage we did in 2015 for the federal election, we did see the conservatives losing their grip on some of those urban areas, um, seats that were won by the liberals, um, particularly Vancouver South, uh, where the defense minister is the, the MP right now. Those were areas that voted very heavily towards conservatives, and uh, conservatives campaigned on the messages that that type of community wants to hear, which is family first and marijuana is terrible and we're never going to legalize it. Mm -hmm. And that plays very well into the East Asian voters. Uh, but they didn't connect that well the last time around. And we didn't see that level of disconnect. We didn't see a situation that would suggest that Richmond was at play, for instance, right. you know, which they held on to. Uh, 
But we did see a lot of people in Surrey who were upset by a wide range of issues, particularly education, mm. uh, and to a lesser extent, uh, housing. Uh, you know, housing was a big concern for the 18 to 34s, but you have a lot of voters who are already Generation X or mm-hmm. baby boomers who are like, I'm, I'm fine, I already have my mortgage and I'm comfortable with it. And perhaps it hasn't hit Surrey as hard yet as it's in sort of Vancouver and into Burnaby. Yeah, definitely, that was, that was also part of it. But there's, there's an inherent uh, um, advantage in, in knocking on doors when you think you're behind. I think that was also part of the difference between this election and the last one. You know, four years ago, it's like, we're going to form the government. I'm going to be your MP, or, sorry, your MLA. And this time around, it's like, well, if you're not as happy as you were four years ago, here's an opposition party that you could give your vote to. Mm-hmm. And that was important as well. You know, people kept saying, you know, there's no way to have a close election unless there's a split on the center-right. Well, even with a split on the center-left, we had a close election. Any closing thoughts? Well, this is fun. You know, yeah. the, the, it was great to, to be able to get the monkey off our back when it came to D.C. <laughs> um, and it's the kind of thing that, uh, that I wake up in the morning for. You know, the, the opportunity to ask people questions, the opportunity to see how they're going to vote. When it goes well, it's a remarkably rewarding feeling. When it Mm -hmm. goes wrong, you just rejig and pull yourself together and keep doing it. All right. Thank you very much, Mario. (laughs) We'll probably have to do this again in three months when there's another election or something else coming up. (laughs) We'll be ready. Thanks again. And finally, moving into quick takes. The Trump administration has written to Congress to officially trigger the NAFTA renegotiations, or more specifically, trigger the provision that requires 90 day of comment so they can then actually start the NAFTA negotiations. Trump's U.S. trade representative finally just got through the Senate confirmation process, so they're kind of starting that one. And there's also some questions on whether or not this is kind of a, hey, stop looking at the complete mess I've made with Russia and Comey and everything else by... Hey, let's focus on NAFTA for a while. Well, I don't think that strategy is working very well, because I didn't even notice this story until you pulled it up. Yeah, CBC led with it, but I don't think any of the American news sites really covered it in much detail. It does not even get a mention on the front page of CNN. Katy Perry going on American Idol has a bigger news presence than this, as far as the Americans are concerned, but did get quite a bit of play up in here in Canada. So this is going to be something to watch over the summer as Canada, U.S., and Mexico start to figure out what exactly they want. Canada's trade representatives have said, yeah, we're ready to negotiate without really specifying what it is we want. Undoubtedly, with a 25-, 30-year-old trade deal, there are things to be updated, and there's potentially even opportunities for leftists out there to hopefully win some more concessions for Canadian labor and for ourselves. But this doesn't feel like a good opportunity for us to come out ahead, I think. Coming to more domestic news, lots of stories out of the Senate this week. One of its committees has voted to adopt the recommendations of a modernization report. This is part of the sort of desire of the Senate to become less scandalous. And the report essentially stems also from the Liberals' decision to kick all their senators out of the Liberal Party of Canada caucus, which gives us something like half the Senate being independent. So those senators now want to find ways to get the sort of strength and 
authority that the conservative senators have because they are an official party caucus. And I think the only one right now because the NDP doesn't recognize the Senate. So what the senators have basically said is they're going to let any nine or more senators who get together can form a caucus along any lines they want. They don't have to be members of a party recognized by Elections Canada. They can be based on regions. They can be based on issues. It sounds like they can sort of form for short periods of time, maybe even, and then break apart. You can only be in one caucus at a time that gets recognition, and that will also get you some funding. But this hopefully gives some way forward for the Senate to almost reform itself in a different way. And no one really knows what it'll look like, and it'll be something that, I guess, evolves over time. So it's interesting, and I don't know if it's going to be good or bad. It's been hard for the government to get its legislation through the Senate because the Senate's been stubbornly independent-minded, as Justin Trudeau wanted, and regional or issue-based caucuses could make that even more difficult. But perhaps our legislation will come out all the better for it. Yeah, we might actually get some of that sober second thought that the Senate is ostensibly there for and doesn't provide nearly as often as it should. Interestingly, uh, looks like one of the Conservative senators might have gotten the boot from the Conservative caucus over this issue in part and kind of a friendliness towards the Liberals or perceived friendliness. Senator Stephen Green of Nova Scotia got booted out of the Conservative caucus shortly after he accepted a dinner invitation from Justin Trudeau, and he'd also voted for the recommendations, which the Conservatives have seen as a kind of an attack on the opposition, kind of a way to dismantle the official opposition within the Senate. It's mostly interesting as a indication of kind of where the kind of real pressure points and touchy areas are within the Conservative caucus in that just kind of a vote in one committee kind of move stuff forward and as well as I guess had a meeting with the Prime Minister and Trudeau's been on a kind of charm offensive as it's been called towards the Senator so it doesn't even seem like this is beyond the pale sort of action for a Senator to take part in so it's mostly just interesting from a huh so that's where the line is bit with the caucus. Well, and the final senator getting some press this week was Senator Colin Kenny, who's now facing an ethics officer review. This follows him, like a number of other senators who've been accused over the past few years, of using Senate resources and public resources sort of for more personal reasons. It sort of just leaves us with another thread of scandal that's going to keep hanging over the Senate, even while it tries to modernize and reform itself. So we'll keep our eyes on that to see how it heads In a follow-up to last week's story we discussed on the oil tanker ban on the north coast of British Columbia, uh, a First Nations group has actually come out and said they're planning on taking the Liberals to court over it, citing a lack of consultation over the ban. This would be from the Woodland Cree in Alberta, who have been supporting a pipeline project and... They've been doing it through the Eagle Spirit Energy Company. Somewhat interestingly, they don't actually have coastal territory, so it would seem to be a harder sell a bit on this. But I think this story is mostly kind of just interesting in the fact that it just shows that a lot of these situations are a little more complex than the simple narratives that often get repeated. And 
for better or worse, kind of the impression that the media tends to give on the pipeline issue is kind of First Nations as a group on one side of the issue. And this tort challenge shows that it rarely comes out quite that simple. And there's usually different interest groups within any given subset of the population that don't always agree on these sorts of things. And I might be hopelessly optimistic here, but it would be nice that the media would put a little more of the sort of nuancey stuff in there, but it's generally a little harder to do. Well, you did read this in the Financial Post, so, I mean, the narrative can be out there and is out there. Well, it, this... it, it is also the Financial Post. Like, it's one of my less favorite parts of the post-media empire, which is kind of saying something, and I do find their stuff tends to be a little more ideologically driven than the uh than the rest of post media than the rest of post media except so, maybe the sun chain but that came so, from yeah, elsewhere put it where you will in that sort of thing but so it's not clear to me that they will be filing lawsuits yet woodland Cree chief isaac labukin averam apologies if i fucked that up uh he said they want to challenge the proposed bill so maybe they're just going to raise some noise and fuss about it he is a member of the Chiefs Council for this Eagle Spirit Inner Energy. And what's interesting is this company hasn't yet really come out fully against it. They've sort of said this moratorium is problematic and would present challenges because they want to support pipeline projects, essentially. But this Eagle Spirit Energy, which I hadn't really come across before this article, has a Chiefs Council. So it has representation from chiefs in northern British Columbia, in Alberta, and elsewhere to sort of advise it and direct it. What is happening around that board table? I don't know. It might be that the coastal chiefs and northern BC ones are a bit more sympathetic to the tanker ban versus others like the Alberta ones who potentially stand to gain from oil exports from their area. So it is a tension and the media should absolutely not paint Aboriginal people in Canada with a monolithic single brush because this was the week of the appropriation prize and <laughs> we need to try harder, I think was the one lesson some people got and a whole bunch of other people just sort of stamped their feet, but not everyone agrees on everything. And that has been Politos. Find links to the stories we mentioned in the show notes at politos.ca. Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at PolitosPod. Leave us a review and let us know what you think. If you have any ideas for the show, feel free to send them to us. And one final reminder, if you haven't mailed in your ballot yet, do so right away because the deadline's approaching and basically should be in the mail Friday. Thanks for listening. <laughs>